1: Visit plannedparenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause.
2: That's like a miracle. QuickTime just worked. Whoa. Impossible. possible. <laughs> All right. I've um... never seen that before. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Jane Koston and ProPublica's Dara Lind. We were going to talk today about Donald Trump and the uh, FDA and uh, medical science. I think originally our idea was to talk about sort of his uh, engagement with the vaccine approval process in which he... um, He kind of offhandedly remarked that deep state saboteurs at the FDA were holding up a vaccine. Uh, He then pivoted to this move for a uh, rapid emergency approval of convalescent... um, What do you call it? Convalescent plasma? Convalescent plasma. Uh, Therapy, which, you know... I mean, obviously, from a scientific perspective, it's not the same thing, right? It's uh, a therapeutic versus vaccine. Uh, but procedurally, it, it seemed like a similar unusual breaking of the norms to have the president of the United States pretty clearly leaning on the FDA to rush a drug approval process in a way that at least went against what what, what they would have done uh, without Trump. Seems kind of bad. I don't know. And I have a super elaborate take on that.
1: Everyone can agree that we would like people who have coronavirus to get better and for other people to not get coronavirus. And so any advance, and it's been interesting because Trump has regular has accused the FDA of slow walking this because of the deep state, um, because the election or something, because Trump likes to say words. And Joe Biden has responded by saying, like, I would love to get a vaccine by October. So basically... Like, Outside of insane people, we are basically agreed that we want things to get better. The challenge is that actual medical science does not really care what we want, and neither does coronavirus. And so I'm interested in stepping back and thinking about what does convalescent plasma mean? What does this trial concept, because we've talked a little bit about vaccine trials before in which Matt bravely volunteered to take on the mantle of trying vaccines for us and i think that it's it's worth having a conversation about what this means that is we attempt to move outside of the political sphere in our conversation
2: Uh. (laughs) so plasma is like it's like part of part of blood Um, I'm not going to get sciencey enough to explain which part it is. Uh, But when you donate blood, which, you know, people do all the time, some of what you donate is plasma, which is used for a variety of circumstances. And when people have recovered from a viral infection and they have antibodies in their blood, uh, those antibodies are also in their blood plasma. And it is clearly true that in many cases, this is an effective treatment for a viral infection, right? I mean, this is nothing about, like, COVID-19 or the SARS-CoV-2 virus, but general principles we know this is something that usually works. Um, We also know that it doesn't always work. So, for example, for Ebola, uh, they tried convalescent plasma therapy, and it seems to not work in that case. Um, And the science using it for for COVID-19 is not... Great. I mean, you people can find some some good studies for it, but as a, you know, not a doctor, but a guy who talks on the internet a lot about studies, this is the kind of thing where, like, not every study says it's useful. The studies that do say it's useful find it for subgroups. Some people feel like there's p-hacking of these other studies. So it's th- there's not like a blockbuster report, and there isn't a clinical gold standard double-blind kind of trial for it. So I think you're clearly in the space of like, in lieu of a clearly superior treatment, it is perfectly reasonable that doctors are trying to use this on some of their patients, but the news about it does not in fact, seem to be that great. And then the the regulatory question is like, well, what do you do in a situation like that? And we we handle different things differently, right? Like if you go to your local CVS, you will find various non-FDA regulated supplements that purport to boost your immune system function. My understanding is they don't work. But some people think they work. Uh, there was a time in my life when I was, like, really into them, you know, the the, the vitamin C immune boosts. And, like, you know, I swore to God it worked. Um, and because placebo effects are real, like, taking fake pills can, in fact, uh, help you feel better. And, and because so,
0: like, it's not, the, you know, there is not a substantial medical downside to these and you're not asking your insurance to cover part of an extremely steep cost for them, the downside to allowing these to continue to be on the market marketing themselves as immune boosts is minimal.
2: Exactly. And we have a lot of stuff like that, right? Like aromatherapy and, you know, therapeutic massage. There's just there's this wide range of things that is not in the like narrow ambit of FDA regulated prescription drugs that some people feel works. uh, Other people feel don't. And like some of it clearly doesn't work. Some of it. I do think there's some evidence for it, right? I mean, when you look at, like, the back pain literature, where there is no, like, great treatment for low back pain, I think what most people, though, do find in that literature, uh, Julia Blue's wrote a great Vox piece for us, is that, like, the heavy-duty pharmaceuticals, like, really don't work um, and have serious downsides with addiction. And the stuff that see- maybe works, you know, is, like, not in that heavily FDA-regulated category. Obviously, COVID nineteen is very different from from back pain, uh, but it's just to say that like this is a general policy question that we have, where it's like there's something it pretty clearly doesn't seem to be dangerous, and it's not clear that it works. So what should you what should you say about that, right? And when you want something to be a prescription drug, there's a very high like the FDA bar for normal approval of drugs is really, really high. And the bar for approval of stuff that, like, isn't that is incredibly low.
0: So... Of the many dynamics going on here, one of which, you know, is is, Matt, what you were just talking about, what we have talked about on the show before, uh, the kind of elastic time between how long it takes science to work and how long we need medicine to evolve and how that often leads to things being in this netherworld of there is some evidence that suggests they're effective, but it's not 100% airtight, and therefore they can exist in a world of permitted but not officially endorsed. That's one dynamic that's going on here. The uh, one of the other questions is to what extent is Donald Trump going and saying things about the FDA and cur- you know, making pronouncements on behalf of the FDA, that kind of thing, a reflection of what we've talked what we talk about all the time on this podcast, which is Donald Trump operating independently of his own executive branch. And to what extent is it the White House interfering with the activity of the executive branch. We do know that there is some flexibility that the FDA can have and has used in the past in cases of medical emergency. We've talked about that on this podcast before. Is, you know, when we talk about vaccines, when we talk about the uh, the CDC's response to the AIDS crisis, there are things that can be done, and so it's not, you know, it's it's there's some. Kind of open space here for it might not be obviously illegal or even obviously improper to put a little bit of a fire in the belly of the approving agencies to treat this as more of an emergency with more exigent circumstances than you otherwise would. But that assumes that the Trump White House is actually like pulling the strings which we don't know for sure. We do know Axios reported that Trump advisor Peter Navarro yelled at a bunch of relevant regulators in a White House meeting saying that they were operating on deep state time and they needed to get on Trump time. You know, we know that president has obviously been like tweeting things that are derogatory to the FDA that could make some political appointees there feel like there's something they need to produce, but we don't know for sure The extent to which the White House treats this as a policy, like a desired policy goal, versus they just want to be able to say that they are doing something in the hopes that the narrative that Trump isn't doing enough on coronavirus goes away. And it's pretty common in this White House on healthcare in particular for Trump to say that these things are happening, which are either already happening or that the White House does that you know, the executive branch doesn't then follow through with real robust policy commitments so that they can declare victory on it. They actually, you know, the first night of the RNC featured a speaker who claims to have been have received a good a a therapy uh, that helped her recover from cancer, thanks to the right to try law that got signed into law by President Trump when in fact she had benefited from an off-label use of a prescribed therapy before the right to try law was even signed. Like they're used to taking to taking things as wins for Trump in order to encourage the idea that Donald Trump cares about you and wants to make you feel better. So I think Are you saying worth-
2: he he sometimes says things that that they're not they're not Exa- true. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Wildly.
2: Is that the implication here?
0: But it's also true that they take that his White House takes credit for things that are already going on and tries to spin them as Donald Trump doing a thing. So what you know, there are questions about political involvement in the FDA approval process. There are also questions about whether the goal here is political involvement in the FDA approval process, or whether the goal is for the White House to be able to say things that are just not necessarily true and have the FDA keep on keeping on.
1: Yeah, the challenge here is that now the FDA isn't keeping on keeping on, you are now seeing the FDA essentially like walking back previous statements and in one case, apologizing, well, sort of apologizing.
2: Well, so we explain what happened here.
1: So the chief of the FDA said that over the weekend um, during a, a weekend press conference, because those are always going to go well, had said that convalescent pl- plasma had provided a dramatic benefit to coronavirus. FDA Commissioner Stephen Hahn, to be clear. And he claimed that giving plasma would help 35 out of 100 people being treated. And he, you know, the quote is, a 35% improve, improvement in survival is a pretty substantial clinical benefit. What that means is, and if the data continue to pan out, 100 people who are sick with COVID-19, 35 would have been saved because of the administration of plasma. But the issue is that that number should probably have been 5 out of 100 or perhaps even 3 out of 100 because there was no control group. They they compared people who got plasma to people who got it they compared people who got it early to people who got it late and between high levels of antibodies in the plasma and low ones. And so according to the Mayo Clinic which led the study, mortality at 7 days was 11% who got a lot of antibodies to 14% who got few. So that's three out of 100. And again, it's unclear. And so then the FDA chief walked this back and essentially said that he should have, and I'll quote, he should have done a better job at that press conference explaining what the data show regarding convalescent plasma. I can assure the American people that this decision was based on sound science and data, which I, I, I don't know if you guys feel assured, but I'm, I'm feeling
2: Unassured. So I I think this is important because, you know, if you think about the, there are several policy critiques of the FDA that the Trump administration during the transition period seemed like they were going to embrace in a potentially big way. Uh, Peter Thiel, uh, you know, who was a sort of influential Trump supporter, this is one of his big ideas, right? So his view is that The regulators take this very sort of narrow view of the cost benefit on drug approvals. And so they say, you know, if the science is unclear, the benefits of letting people use something are extremely low and there's these various other kind of risks. So that's why we're strict, right? And Teal's viewpoint is, well, the benefits of developing new cures, are extremely high, so anything that you do to sort of lower the bar to turning a promising laboratory science into a marketable drug is really really, really good, not because some of the individual drugs are better but because you greatly increase the financial roi to drug investment and you 're going to have way more things down the road. interesting discussion i think uh, I, I think it 's a serious point to be frank that the uh, domination of the fda by medical doctors leads them to not see like the whole the whole field of view here the trump administration though didn't do that right? Like whatever that may have been. They didn't change the FDA's safe and effective standard. They didn't put forward an an idea that had been on the table, a a smaller idea, but but I think clearly a good one, was to have mutual recognition with Europe and to just say, look, we think the European regulators, like they're fine. If you can take this medicine in Germany, you can also take it in the United States. Uh, They didn't do that. They haven't done any like systematic policy reforms at the FDA. And in fact, the FDA has continued to really slow walk the rollout of new testing ideas, right, where they applying their sort of normal medical device standard. If somebody comes to them and they're like, "Okay, we've got this test and it's a little bit faster and it doesn't involve jabbing something way, way up your nose and it's a lot cheaper, but also it's worse. The FDA normally looks at something like that, and they they take a very dubious view of that, right? They want to approve treatments that are superior to the state of the medical art, and they don't take into account those kind of other benefits, right? With something like, with COVID testing, speed, cheapness, ease of use, these are all relevant variables. And you could do the math, right? If you're talking about, you know, a high school trying to operate, being able to tease to test people frequently is more important than the accuracy of the individual tests. Anyway, there's a lot of problems with the FDA is what I'm trying to say. But if you ask a defender of the FDA's uh, status quo method what they are worried about, they are worried about exactly what happened here at this press conference, which is that there's no harm in le- as far as we know, in letting people use convalescent plasma, there's very serious harm in tricking people into thinking that there's been a huge medical breakthrough and that this illness is now much more treatable than it is, right? Like by the same token, there's nothing bad really about like uh, Jolly Ranchers. Uh, but if you let people run around saying that Jolly Ranchers cure lung cancer, it's not that lung cancer patients eating Jolly Ranchers would be bad. It's that way more people might start smoking. And so it's like important to not let like wrong claims about medical treatments get out in the atmosphere. And that's clearly what Trump is trying to do here, right? He's he's acting like a, a snake oil salesman who is telling people that there's been this incredible medical breakthrough when there just hasn't been.
0: Right. This kind of, for me, gets back to the question of whether the danger here is the is what's happening behind closed doors or whether the danger is the bully pulpit itself, right? Because that is reminiscent more than anything of Trump just riffing on the potential therapeutic uses of bleach and sunlight, which was so obviously uh, beyond the pale for, you know, the manufacturers of household bleach products, for example, that there was a kind of counter wave of correct information. And which might have had, might have been minimized in the potential like downsides by the fact that people are familiar with bleach and sunlight, that it, th- those are, those are common substances that don't seem like, you know, medical magic. Uh, whereas something like convalescent plasma may sound, you know, z- may sound much fancier and therefore more likely to cure you. But he didn't need to go through the FDA for all of that. And it seems that the, combination of a president who appears to deeply psychologically want all of this to be over and who is allowing that to overhype any potential breakthrough or benefit or cure, especially if it goes against the conventional wisdom of, no, you just have to wear a mask and, you know, refrain from some types of poten- of, of economic activity. And a an existing Lack of confidence in this in the strength of scientific communication. and I, I I think that there are very few people who are simultaneously super gung-ho about Donald Trump and super aware of the problems that the cDC and other government and you know p- public institutions had with messaging around masks in the early days of the pandemic or you know some of the messaging around the relative transmission of droplets versus how long it could last on surfaces what we're now seeing with some kind of with with a slight correction in what appeared to be conventional wisdom that children weren't necessarily vectors for the coronavirus there have been enough problems with the scientific community's ability to communicate both like the complexity of what safety precautions mean and who might need them, and the difference between uncertainty and unknowability, that Trump is playing on something that is not only already extant in a lot of people who kind of intuitively don't want to trust authority and want to believe that they're finding out the answers for themselves, but that also plays into some specific frustrations that have happened with this pandemic that may have left people feeling like they can't trust the official channels because the official channels haven't been honest with them about what's going on.
1: One of the things I keep pointing out on this very podcast and elsewhere is that this pandemic has been meshed onto existing problems that we've already had. And among them is an existing distrust of the quote-unquote medical establishment. I mean, how many times have you heard on Facebook or any other entity complaints about big pharma? And we're still in the midst of, by the way, still an ongoing opioid crisis that was in part perpetuated by the pharmaceutical industry um, with specific pharmaceutical companies essentially saying, oh, Pana, what could go wrong? So I think that this is yet another example in which what you're seeing is a institution in the FDA and others and the CDC that think of themselves as being objective, nonpartisan allies of truth and science, but are perceived as being part of a larger and to some people questionable institution. It's worth noting that that is not how the vast majority of people feel. The polling on how people view both the CDC and the FDA remains very high and very positive. Uh, but I think that it is worth noting that this isn't happening in a vacuum.
2: Right. And, you know, and this this gets into the concerns about vaccines, right, which is that there's a sort of growing chatter uh, that Trump is going to push It's it's hard to say, right? Like, obviously, the president of the United States should be pushing for the development of a safe and effective vaccine as rapidly as possible, Um, but that he is going to be aiming for some kind of, you know, Comey letter-esque last minute announcement that, you know, even if like you can't get the vials out, you can't actually treat anybody to just like be able to say five to 10 days before the election, this is it guys, we've got the vaccine. Um, and there's incredible pushback. I mean, so something that that occurred to me uh, a few weeks ago was I thought to myself, okay, before you can do phase three clinical trials of a vaccine, uh, you have to do basically the same thing in monkeys. You know, that's just how it works. So I was asking some people, like, how often does a vaccine that works in monkeys fail in humans? And... Not a lot of people wanted to talk about this for some reason, even though it seems like a kind of basic question. Anyway, a a few different people who seem qualified, I mean, I don't know. I'm a a reporter. I I don't cover this well. They said like, well, about 25% of the time uh, works in monkeys, fails in humans, Uh, which means given the number of different vaccines that have passed the monkey trial, the odds that one of these candidates will work are actually pretty overwhelming. And this made me feel really happy. And sort of made me wonder why the authorities are not like saying this more clearly that, like, there's a lot of uncertainty about each of the like eight promising candidates. But it would be really weird, honestly, um, for one of them to not pan out, Uh, which I think would be the kind of like happy story Trump wants. Um, But he doesn't, I don't know, do, do the research on that level. At any rate, though. The public health people are really against this, like they are like really against getting people's hopes up. They have you have seen it every step of the way, whether it's masks, whether it's HEPA filters, whether it's sunlight deactivates coronavirus, like the public health people's overriding fear is, quote unquote, false sense of security about everything like they want people to avoid large gatherings to stay 6 feet away to wash their hands now they do want you to wear a mask like they they want you to follow the rules not get hyped up about science right uh, which i think sometimes leads them to actually downplay like actual scientific information but then really does open the door for opportunists to just kind of like flood in with like completely fake ideas, because it's just such a natural question for people to want to know, right? It's like, what are smart, well-informed scientists like best guess? What What is not guess, but like what like what's their to the best of their knowledge? Like, how are we proceeding on this? And as far as I can tell, like the news is actually pretty good. But I feel like the dominant sort of like overt message that people have been getting is kind of bleak. There's a lot of like vaccine might not give you lifelong immunity. It'll be really hard to distribute. And like all this stuff is true. And it's because they're trying to get people to like work on the issues, which which I understand. Um, And, and there's like so many cases where like political activists don't want to talk about good news on their issue for the same kind of reason. Um but it's it, it's a weird situation where, you know, Trump could do something very abusive. But Trump could even do something like one of the biggest Trump moves is like like what he did with with NAFTA, where like it was sort of nothing, but he like to this whole dog and pony show about it. And to the extent that he has any like go to governance moves, it's probably that one. And, you know, I mean, I do think people are right to sort of have their eye on it. But I also don't know exactly, like, what is the level of concern there, Um, which is different from if everyone starts injecting themselves with bleach, like, there's an obvious harm.
0: Yeah, I think that you're right, that there's a reluctance to talk about good news or take the win. But I also do wonder in this particular context, how much of that is just that. So there was an obvious positive public health impact in the very early phases of the pandemic when a lot of individual Americans and business owners, et cetera, state and local officials took it upon themselves to restrict their movement and their interaction with others because they were getting the message that There was a massive public health threat, and that if everything just calmed down for a second, we would build the time to, you know, we would create the time to build out the infrastructure. And then that time wasn't used. And there was an obvious negative public health impact to people just getting exhausted and feeling like they had done their part and that it was time for them to shift tactics. So I do think that there's a valid concern right now about what happens if we tell people to expect good news on a certain timeline and then it doesn't materialize but you're right that it's not that it it doesn't it doesn't really help things to have a i mean obviously to have like whether you trust Anthony Fauci dependent on whether on what your preexisting opinion is on Donald on Donald Trump, but also to have the idea that to be serious about the science means to be pessimistic about the timeline for a vaccine and to be patriotic means to be optimistic about the timeline for a vaccine. Hopefully there's a better answer here. I don't think it's going to materialize in the next few months, but it's certainly something to be cognizant of as an individual news consumer that like, are you reacting to science news or economy news because you're worried about the potential knock on effect? for your pre- preferred candidate in November, or are you absorbing it as a piece of information that might make you reassess some of your assessments of what's likely to happen down the road?
1: Yeah, coronavirus appears to be an illness which you can get more than once, based on most recent information we have. But again, even using that information, as we've discussed, as we've written on the mask debate, where masks were bad, and now they're good, where we've talked about social distancing, where we've talked about whether it's singing or going to an orchestra because of the instruments. So much of this is based on the information that we have as of 10 39 on Tuesday, August 25th. So, with that said, the information we have right now seems to indicate that coronavirus, the COVID 19, is something that is. Going to, as we've seen in countries that have quote, you know, quote unquote beat it, that when it comes back, it still returns and still in those countries has necessitated lockdown measures. And so I think that in part what we're witnessing is the culmination of a scientific establishment that is responding poorly to political pressure, a political environment that is more distrustful of the scientific establishment than ever before and an illness that is, one, not entirely distinct enough to become an isolated threat that we can think of as either being a specifically bad disease or, as we've seen before with HIV-AIDS, happening to quote-unquote specifically bad people. It is an illness that appears to target people generally over the age of 55, though people who are younger have gotten it, as we've seen in college football programs, it also can potentially contribute to some heart ailments. But it is something that appears to be something that we are, we are going to continue to see it, that this is something that we are going to continue to have. And so There will not be, I think, a moment where this is over exactly. I think that we are going to see, you've heard Trump occasionally say things about how like on November 3rd, it's all going to be over or something like that. And honestly, if if the coronavirus pandemic were ended as in there is no more coronavirus in November, I would be absolutely thrilled. This has been, I think for everyone, an exogenous stressor that none of us needed. Absolutely none of us. And yet I think that what we're coming to terms with and what I think the scientific establishment is coming to terms with is that there has to be a better means of making the science applicable to the people who are attempting to make the science work for them. That the idea of what this looks like, you know, what we've seen, for instance, there's been a resurgence of cases in Hawaii because Hawaii appears to have done in my view, the stupidest possible thing, which is to r- permit indoor dining and events, but a bar people from going to parks, which, again, it's Hawaii, so I think more people should be outdoors, but they're seeing a resurgence of cases. And so you're seeing the wonders of federalism in some part, but you're also seeing that people are attempting to take science from. Different- Scientific information, but mesh it onto their existing lives. They're trying to mesh it onto. Well, I still need to take the metro. I still need to go to work. I still need to go outside. My daughter still needs to go to daycare. My kid still needs to go to college, which is the the. We could have do an entire separate episode on why universities are open, but grade schools are not, because that is. Oh boy, that's that's a lot. But I think that what we're seeing overall is an example of people attempting to take scientific information but also make it fit for their very unscientific lives.
2: Well, and I mean, specifically with, uh, I think a lot of the examples you were raising there is you're just seeing sort of political clout and fiscal issues, you know, intersecting and and overriding what a sort of science-based uh, thing would be I I believe like Hawaii is allowing like fee generating outdoor activities, but not you know it's it's like they there's I I went to the beach uh, last weekend. I drove to the state park in Maryland. We paid five dollars to park, and then like me and my son, like we were just there for hours and hours and hours, not doing anything to quote unquote like boost the economy. Uh, then there were other people like. Having lunch at le diplomat uh, around the corner from my block, like paying taxes, supporting uh waiters with tips you know blah 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 and so uh, and and in normal circumstances like i i would valorize that i i hate going outside i'm I am all for keeping keeping the economy rolling, but it's just it's like the public health imperative and the uh, you see it too with colleges and and grade schools right it's like the um The colleges need tuition money, whereas for public schools, it's cheaper to not operate them. So, you know, you can do it there. Um, Daycares, though, right? Because you see, it's like, well, why are daycares and colleges open, but not K-12 schools? And it's just entirely the revenue model. Like, it's nothing to do with, with science anyplace. And that is where it's an unfortunate aspect of the way the federal regulatory setup is that, like pharmaceuticals are regulated by this very strict scientific standard that I think sometimes ignores like big picture economics of innovation and how we drive progress but non-pharmaceutical interventions like no politician stands up there and is like I'm totally blowing off scientific <laughs> advice about this but like they're all doing it. like not just Trump right like the different elected officials have different like political styles based on partisanship and who they affiliate with and and what they're doing. But virtually every state seems to me to be making these decisions based on criteria totally outside the like real domain of, of public health. And that's because the scientists who have, I think, maybe too much authority in one area have like no authority at all. In others, but we all know. You ask any doctor, you're like, "How do you be healthy?" They're not like it's just about taking the right pill at the right time. That's all that matters, right? Like with anything, infectious disease, heart disease, cancer, anything. Like lifestyle choices are very important, and we have like so little scientific influence over anything non pharmaceutical. Should we take a break? Do do a yeah, paper? Yeah, let's,
0: let's talk about a white paper now that we've sufficiently. uh, made it clear that all knowledge is contingent except for when it's just lies. Is that what we did? Wee! <laughs> okay.
3: Yeah, basically. Support for The Weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash NAP. That's N-A-P-P. All
2: right, back with uh, The Economic Impact of Migrants from Hurricane Maria by Giovanni Perry, Derek Rory, and Justin C. Wiltshire. This is a paper uh, about essentially about immigration economics, although I want to make note before I get canceled that people born in Puerto Rico who come to the U.S. mainland are not immigrants per se, like in legal status. As an economic effect, it is... very similar, though. And what you had in Hurricane Maria is a very large influx of people from the island of Puerto Rico moving to different parts of the United States, uh, but specifically to the city of Orlando, a lot of them came to. Uh, Traditionally, Puerto Rican migrants had moved to New York City, uh, but New York has become very expensive. uh, So even the Bronx, Spanish Harlem, traditional Puerto Rican neighborhoods have become a little pricey. There's more and more moves to the Orlando area. And we can know because we know what caused this surge in people leaving was the weather and not a sudden change in the economy of Orlando, we can say this is more or less exogenous shock to the Orlando economy. Because this is always a question in immigration, right? If you do a very naive look and you're like, well, where do immigrants go? And you say, well, places with immigrants have a way better economy than places with no immigrants. And then the anti-immigration people, they'll come back and they'll be like, no, no, no. It's like the immigrants go to the strong economies. So we know that's not what happened here, right? People left Puerto Rico because it was destroyed by a hurricane. They went to Orlando because of like family and interpersonal networks. It's just where people are going. So what happens? Uh, They say that they find um, employment went up in the aggregate, not down. So there was no like crowding out of workers by the new workers, uh, and that wages were about flat uh, despite the increase in the size of the labor force and the labor force participation rate. But there was a compositional shift. Uh, Average wages paid in the construction industry went down and then they went up uh, elsewhere in in retail and hospitality. This, uh, you know, it contributes to our our understanding of this. Um, The sort of big point here uh, that goes through a lot of Perry's research in particular is that immigrants are both buyers and sellers of uh, labor. Um, So, you know, basically like all the stores and restaurants in Orlando sold more stuff because there were way more people uh, in Orlando. And it is also true that there were more people available to work. Uh, but the, you know, in theory, the economic impact of that could go either way. And and they find it's, it's roughly balanced uh, with an expansion of the size of the labor force. I have a book coming out called One Billion Americans. Uh, you have a book coming out? I do, Jane. Wow. <laughs> Um, we think uh, that's the first I've heard of it. Yes. Yes. It's here. I I even have a copy. You can't see because uh, this is a podcast. Um, I, I cite many studies along these lines in the book. I would say it is a quite consistent finding in the uh, immigration literature that the demand side impact of immigrants is very significant and sometimes neglected in highly stylized models. So
0: it's worth kind of getting into what you were kind of mentioning as a as an aside, Matt, the whole like legally speaking Puerto Ricans are not immigrants in the in the obvious sense, they are simply migrating for labor reasons. For one thing, uh, just because it's been a while since we talked about the Jones Act on this podcast, it's worth noting that the reason that you can treat Puerto Rican migration to Orlando as something different from just like going from one state to another state is because Puerto Rico is much more economically isolated than actual states in the United States are from each other, thanks to, you know, economic policies that make it extremely expensive to import things there. The other thing that's worth noting, though, is that not only does that mean that this is a slightly different scenario than what we're actually talking about with immigration debates, which is changing legal policies to allow one particular kind of immigrants or another to come in greater or lower quantities. And therefore, that like some of the things that these authors point out, that these authors point out that this is a better kind of natural experiment for labor migration shocks than the things that the literature has relied on in the past, such as the Muriel Boatlift of 1980, which has had more papers written about it for the number of data points available than I think any other natural experiment that I've ever seen in economics, uh, just because it's, it's an obvious question. Case to study: What are the impacts of a large number of immigrants on the economy? And the data just isn't very good. And so, you know, Perry and his co-authors talk through these immigrants are more similar to immigrants these days because they're more likely to be educated, uh, et cetera, et cetera, which makes it, in some ways, a good descriptive fit for what happens when people when immigrants come from other countries to the U.S. right now. In some ways, not an ideal fit for talking about immigration policy conversations where the discussion is, should we change the people who are coming to the United States and the quantities in which they're coming? But the other thing that I wanted to note is the labor and migration debate, like a lot of the immigration debate, shades easily from being about unauthorized immigration to being about all immigration. And so you'll see, you know, so they don't even bother to in this paper say, well, because these are Puerto Ricans, they're U.S. citizens, and therefore this is going to be different in X, Y, and Z ways from an unauthorized migration shock. Uh, Because the debate generally goes from, well, unauthorized immigrants will make it harder for Americans to get jobs to, well, immigrants will make it harder for Americans to get jobs. But there is one sense in which unauthorized migration in particular would have a different impact, which is that if you assume that unauthorized immigrants are going to be paid under the table, they might not necessarily be paid minimum wage jobs and or be paid minimum wage. And therefore, the crowding effect on U.S. workers would be different than if the question is, do you hire a Puerto Rican U.S. citizen for minimum wage or do you hire a native-born U.S. citizen for minimum wage? And so that is something that you know, in theory is a different question than the one this paper answers. It's just that in the economics literature, as in the broader debate, it's rare that you actually see someone consistently talking about the impact of unauthorized immigrants on the labor force rather than just immigrants more broadly.
1: Right. And I think that that's a really important discussion to have because I think that so much of we get into a Mott and Bailey type argument where we think that we are talking, but it's actually kind of a reverse Mott and Bailey in which we think that we're talking about undocumented immigrants and that immigration restrictionists are like, no, 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 we're talking about immigrants writ large. I don't know what a reverse Mott and Bailey would be because that would actually be a very poor defense strategy. But nevertheless, I think Motley. It's, yes, it would be a Bail and Motley. But um, I do think that that is a worthwhile conversation to have here because I think that there's the politicization understandable, understandably so has changed what the immigration debate looks like. But it's papers like this that are particularly helpful in narrowing down what we are actually discussing. We are discussing not just immigration, but migration within even within kind of the American totality, so to speak.
2: Well, and we're discussing, I mean, you know i i i i was joking that i i i don't promote my book enough um but but genuinely right that you know immigration and you know interregional migration and various other things they're all subsets of like a larger phenomenon of trying to understand the economics of population dynamics right and you know if you think about the first Whatever it is, several hundred thousand years of human society, not even society, right? Like human existence, you're on a sort of subsistence plane of various kinds, whether as a hunter gatherer or as a a peasant agriculturalist, going all the way up into the 18th century, where it's like, okay, well, if there's more people here, somebody has to be pushed onto more marginal land. We're going to have to not eat meat so that you know, we can grow, we can just eat the grains ourselves. Um, and it's very deeply embedded in the human psyche to think, look, if there's more people here, there's going to be less stuff to go around. So we really, really need to worry about that. And, you know, what you see in these studies is that, like, as is often the case, when you take a more um, uh, scholarly view of things, there's Things are not exactly as your intuitions might make them out to be that we mostly work in service provision. And so the existence of other people creates bigger, deeper markets, right? Like, I mean, I think about this podcast all the time, right? Like, it's a great show. You know, I love it. It it works. Uh, We sell ads, in part because we're all so amazing. Um, But also, if we lived in the three of us with all our exact same talents, if we lived in Finland, and we were trying to do this in Finnish, it just it wouldn't work because it's like a niche show, right? And if you take the Finnish language community and then try to make a podcast for a subset of it, you've got like four people and there's no there's no podcast, right? In America, because there's like a lot of people, and because many foreign people also speak English. It's like do podcasts in English is a rich business opportunity uh, that doesn't exist otherwise. And, and there's something similar about Orlando, right? Like the less rinky-dink Orlando becomes, the more you can do. It's not just like, well, this is a short-term paper. So it's like, well, you have more customers for your restaurant. But it's like you could have more different kinds of restaurants. Like big cities have weirder small businesses in them, uh, because there's more people. And so things can work there. And you build a more sort of dynamic society. And this is obviously not like what people are talking about When they worry about, you know, child migrants or refugees from Somalia or H-1B workers or whatever else, people have lots of anxieties. Um, But they do like to anchor their anxieties in the idea that, like, objectively, this is going to be bad, not just I don't like it. And so I think it's important to, you know, illustrate that, like, yeah, like, what if a bunch of people from Puerto Rico suddenly move to your city because of a hurricane? And like, it's fine.
1: I I I'm back at Finnish language podcasting which now I'm extraordinarily curious about uh and maybe we should get into that because maybe <laughs> we're going to dive in just really laser focus on the Finnish audience that I think would be very receptive to our discussions. Um yeah, I think that it's it's interesting thinking about how this how the nationalization of po- political issues is sometimes helpful and sometimes really helps people elide what's actually going on in specific communities. And I think about this a lot with conversations. I know Matt has written extensively on this about Cuban Americans in Florida and how the entire, I mean, I'm actually working on something on this, but the idea of like what, appeals to Cuban-American voters in Florida and what appeals to Mexican-American voters in Texas and what appeals to Guatemalan-American voters in Michigan are all three extraordinarily different things. But the nationalization of politics means that we're just like the Latino vote, as if that's just like everybody thinks the same. Um, But And then that's not even getting into the
0: question of generational divides among Cubans or the extent to which Venezuelans in South Florida are a comparable block. Yeah,
1: exactly. And yeah, I think that 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 is fascinating, and I'm very, I don't know, I, I'm an increasingly intrigued by what all of this means.
2: All right, uh, let's wrap that up. Um, thanks, uh, Jane. Thanks, Dara. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Jeffrey Geld, uh, and The Weeds will be back on Friday.